0: Questions. So please feel welcome to type those into the chat as they arise. Before I take some questions, I want to talk with you a little bit before we open up for questions. So please feel welcome to again type those into the chat. Or if you have a question that's too much to type into the chat, you can raise your hand and I'll see if I can organize the headphones so that I can hear you. Every single practice of yoga should have some positive impact in your life. So you should get up from each yoga practice feeling a little bit better about yourself and about life. And that is independently true, regardless of what asanas you do. So it is a mistake that many new practitioners make, myself included, when I first started practicing to judge success in yoga by success in asana. You can succeed at yoga and fail at asana. So you can let yourself off the hook. Uh, But on the other hand, some students hear that and say, oh, well, then I don't need to try anymore. If the asana doesn't matter, then who cares? I'll just lie here and do whatever. So we need to find also this balance. And the balance is traditionally presented by a sutra that I have talked about before, and many teachers talk about because it is very important. We have the idea that asana is presented. Well, I'll talk about two sutras, actually. So, the first one is the traditional presentation of asana by Patanjali, Shtiram Sukham Asana, one of the rare sutras where the sage Patanjali actually talks about asana. So, if we define asana in this way, we have the Sanskrit word Shtira, which you can have translated into English as steadiness. Strength, willpower, determination. And the opposite presented as suka, Sukha, the word for ease and flow, happiness, comfort, and you could say just what brings you pleasure. So we have the idea that asana is a balance of opposing forces. What are these opposing forces? Well, if we take a look just at this, we have the idea that there is the element of shtira, discipline, strength, determination. If you remove that, then also we do not have asana. But some students also forget that they need to have the element of sukha, the element of ease, flow, comfort, and joy. Generally, every single human being, we have a tendency towards one way or the other, and we vacillate between one or the other. Sometimes we do too much sukha. Sometimes we do too much data, we're too hard on ourselves, too strict on ourselves, we get down on ourselves too much, beat ourselves up for not performing to the best of our ability, for getting injured or having pain in the body, beat ourselves up very hard on ourselves, you know, or sometimes we're hard on others too. Then we can veer towards too much sukha, too much ease and flow, too much pleasure. We delete every asana that's challenging. We remove every struggle and exist in the realm only of pleasure. So we want to find balance. We can take from Patanjali that shtiram, sukham, asanam means that asana is a balance between shtiram and sukha. When we have this balance between uh, expressed physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, then that balance is the state of yoga. So please remember this in the asana. Many students will be too strict on themselves. You know, you can see when we get, what does it feel like when you're too strict on yourself? Too much discipline, too much strictness. Then if you don't do one asana one day, you feel so miserable for the whole day. So can you think about maybe when that's happened? Maybe some asana that you normally do one day you couldn't do has ruined the whole day. Oh, I feel so miserable. Why? Oh, today I fell out of headstand. Oh, poor me. It's ruined my day, ruined my day, ruined my day. The ridiculous of this can be really seen from the outside looking in. The fact that you even got to try a headstand. Oh, how wonderful. That you fell out. Also wonderful. But if we're too much data, we're too hard on ourselves. Too rigid. Too dogmatic. And we don't give ourselves forgiveness. We, we remove those things which may bring us a little bit of joy. A little bit of ease and flow. So if we veer towards one extreme or the other, we miss the state of yoga. Patanjali earlier in the sutras also talks about this balance of opposing forces. And the earlier sutra uses the word, not asana, but uses the word nirodaha. So before I tell you the sutra, I want to talk about what nirodaha means. Nirodaha, I'm sure you've heard before from the most famous of all of Patanjali's yoga sutras, chitta Viti Nirodaha. Now, nirodaha is often translated out of the Sanskrit into the word stillness. But if we understand stillness, how do we achieve the state of stillness? So another way of understanding Nirodha is by its opposite. So if the opposite of the state of Nirodha is presented kind of as almost like um, a tornado, which would come in with a violent spinning force and destroy things in its wake. And this violent spinning force is directed outwards, right? So I think this is, um, centripetal force, although I might have my physics wrong. So there's one force that spins and pushes out and one force that spins and pushes into the center. And I think what spins and pushes into the center is centrifugal force. But again, I could I could have my physics wrong. You know, it's not my area of expertise. So if somebody wants to look that up and let me know if I'm right or wrong, I'd appreciate that. So if the idea with uh, the opposite of Nirodaha is it's that spiraling outward. The senses are looking outward, looking here, looking there, going there. And it creates this whirlwind spin in the mind, which just focuses there and there and there and there. There's no balance. There's only the state of craving and aversion. We want this, we want that. I see this, I want it. I see that, I don't want it. And we can create this spinning state of mind. So Nirodaha is presented sometimes, again, as this opposite. So what's the opposite of this external spiral which pushes energy outward? Then we can think about an internal spiral which pushes energy inward. So another way to think of nirodaha is not stopping, but is the redirection of the organs of the senses to the inner worlds to such a degree and depth and power so that the surface of the mind appears to be absolutely still. And so now we can understand how do we achieve that state? Oh, because if you've ever come to a meditation class or something like this and been given the direction, okay, close your eyes and bring your mind to stop, you know, or stop thinking. If anyone's ever told you to stop thinking, I don't know about you, but the first thing that happens for me is I start thinking even more, you know, please stop thinking. Oh, and immediately I'm thinking, oh, I cannot stop thinking. Why can I not stop thinking? Do you think other people can stop thinking like that? And then I'm just thinking about how I cannot stop thinking, which was worse than when I started, because now I'm having a little you know, moment. I'm having a little, you know, um, centripetal spiral in this uh, state of, of the mental world. So, in this way, yoga is a technique. Yoga does not say, okay, go do Nirodha. Patanjali says very specifically, Abhyasa Vairagya Bhyam Tan Nirodha. It's an instruction. So, what is the state of Nirodha? And we talked about that. Now, how do we get there? Ah, we must have Abhyasa. What is Abhyasa? Like stira, it is discipline, effort, determination. You have to work for it, right? It's not going to arrive on your doorstep. There's not like a Nirodaha fairy that's going to knock on your door and just choose you. Oh, you're the chosen one. Now, welcome to the realm of Nirodaha. It's not like that. You have to work. This requires effort. There's Abhyasa. Everybody practicing Ashtanga Yoga knows that there is Abhyasa. There is effort. You know, just the sun salutations, so much effort. Then you have to, the more you go into the method, the more effort there is come in beginning, you like the practice. Oh, wonderful. You take the practice. Then you start hearing, oh, you have to breathe in this particular way. Oh my God. I don't have to just do the poses. I have to breathe in this way. And then you hear this thing, bandhas. Now you have to squeeze your anus and breathe and do the poses. Oh my God. Who knew? Now I have to do so much effort. Then you say, okay, and maybe you started off like I did doing yoga twice a week. When I first started, I wanted to do yoga only Tuesday and Thursday. Suddenly, now you have to do it six days a week and squeeze your anus and breathe deeply and do all these poses. Then when you finish primary series, they're like, hey, do this other stuff. This other stuff. I just finished this. It took five years. Now I need to do more. And you just keep practicing, practicing. There's so much Abhyasa in Ashtanga. Ashtanga is, we really get the Abhyasa elements. So... What is the hardest for the Ashtanga practitioner to get? Any disciplined yoga practitioner. We gravitate towards discipline. Abhyasa must be balanced with the state of vairagya. Vairagya, non-attachment. So we have also the state of sukha, letting go. We're letting go. Ashtanga practitioners, letting go. We're like, no, no, I don't want to let go. I want to do tomorrow. I'm not going to let go. I have to do six days a week. I have to show up. I don't let go. I show up every day. I work hard, you know? So the problem with this is that without the elements of letting go, we can end up turning what is a good-hearted effort into forcefulness. Too much forcefulness, what happens? Something breaks when you apply too much pressure. And unfortunately, the something in the yoga practice is us. Our bodies can suffer with too much force, too much effort. So when we understand vairagya, we have to understand that it's not quitting. And that's super important to understand. We don't quit. We show up every day with the recognition that we're not in control. And this is an, a very difficult sort of line to walk and it's a tightrope to walk and navigate in the inner world. So when you think about Vairagya, it's not quitting, but it's the recognition of humility that says, I'm not in control. Even though I'd like to be in control, even though it feels better when I'm in control, I recognize that I'm not in control. I don't control when my hip opens. I would like to but I don't, I don't control when I get to do, you know, when I can finally go up and headstand, I would like to, but I'm not in control. And that recognition of turning things over is a different state than quitting. Because if you quit, there's usually this element of bitterness. There's usually this element of kind of unforgiveness and hardness. That's like, I worked so hard. I didn't get it. Well, fine, you know, throw it all away. So we have this kind of, you know, forget it, I quit, I'm done. Whereas the state of Vaidagya is still willing to put in the effort, humbly willing to show up and say, I've been working on this for 20 years, still hasn't come, but I show up every day and I squeeze my Mula and I breathe in deeply and I show up on my mat and I breathe in with the recognition that sooner or later, whatever is meant to happen will happen. Very hard state to be in. Now, what helps a lot with vairagya, of course, is to bring this sutra back to that parallel of sukha. If there's not an element of something you enjoy in your practice, then we want to bring in some element of joy. In the practice. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's not necessarily permission to just go do all kinds of crazy yoga poses. People hear that and they're like, oh, did she say I can do this and this and this in the practice? So there are other ways to bring in elements of joy rather than just doing crazy yoga poses. For example, if you haven't created kind of a very pleasurable practice space for yourself, particularly now in these days when we're practicing at home, a little bit of sukha can be as simple as unrolling your mat and placing next to your mat, you know, in a very particular way, all of the items that you need for practice that day. It can be as simple as lighting an incense to get the scent in the room, to bring you into the mood of practice, a little bit of something you enjoy. For me, I love, and this is going to sound ridiculous, but I love a scented candle and I put on a candle and it it, it creates an atmosphere that brings this kind of feeling of joy into the practice for me. And that makes a really big difference. We can think of these small rituals of sukkah, that can help us move into a feeling of sacredness, where we soften the edges just a little bit to bring that softness into the practice. And this can help us also achieve again. What are we after? Abhyasa, vairagya, byam mm-hmm. tanirodaha. So, if we think about, if we think about that, how how can we attain that? If we again go back to Nirodaha is expressed as a balance of opposing forces. the interesting thing is that these opposing forces are opposing. they're oppositional. They seem not to make sense. How can I be disciplined and effortful and soft around the edges at the same time? The mind, in its previous training, meaning just like our life, we have a tendency towards extremes. It's this or that, one or the other, high or low. I can't be high and low. I can't be, this and that, I can't be disciplined and soft. So how can you create within yourself a balance of opposing forces? Here is an interesting way to think about that. When setting a gemstone, all right? So I'm sure you have, if you don't own gemstones, you are not think we have to own gemstones, but I'm sure we, we walk by some jeweler at some moment and we have seen some gemstone seemingly miraculously set, floating between two, metal constructions. And this is when a gemstone is what's called tension set. Does everyone know what I'm talking about? Where you have two kind of metal prongs and then there's a, there's a gemstone of some type seemingly floating in the middle. Between you and I, I am terrified of that because if I think I'm going to spend that much money to buy that item and it's floating there, I don't trust it personally, but that's just my skepticism. I'm sure it totally works. It's a tried and true method of jewelry. I just don't wear that much jewelry. I'm probably not that familiar with it. But the tension that I want you to think about setting is in your mind. So that gemstone we have, we have also this this um, metaphor of the gemstone is this clear light that gets shined through the prism of the mind. And when the 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 the, the prism of the mind shines so clearly. It's sometimes described to shine like a diamond. So we can think about the most precious of all gemstones, the diamond mines. And when we think about this tension set, how do we create our minds to be like a diamond? We have to have the perfect balance between abhyasa and vairagya, or the perfect balance in our asana between the state of sthira and sukha. And in this way, these oppositional forces create a living paradox within ourselves where we can contain truths and experiences which would seemingly contradict one another. What a great and wonderful thing to experience that we don't have to be absolutely this or absolutely that, that we don't have to be absolutely anything. We don't need to stake out this absoluteness, that we can maintain two seemingly contradictory. Experiences within ourselves, and we can hold that tension within our minds. And this, I think, is an experience or a statement of spiritual intelligence the ability to hold two oppositional truths in yourself without making either wrong. So we can be both disciplined and released. We can be both intense and soft at the same time. And that paradox is, I think, the Zen riddle that we're all here to solve. So I see that uh, Richard has looked up centrifugal force for me. So let's see what, what Richard has reports from Google. So Richard says, Googling says centrifugal force is away from the center. The etymology, like the center, and fugal, like running away like a fugitive. And he says, now I might remember that. So centrifugal force is running away. So the, the opposite of Nirodaha is centrifugal force. And we want to think about Nirodaha as centripetal force directed in towards the axis, okay? So centripetal force directed in towards the axis. So we can thank Google and Richard for the small physics lesson, all right? Now, hopefully we'll all remember that. I'm gonna try to tuck that away in my brain. So centrifugal force, like a fugitive running away from the center. Centripetal force coming into the axis, all right? into the center line. So when you think about this, how often do we need to redirect the mind? There's a sound here, sound there. It's a constant practice. I ha- it, and I find it at home, one of the big problems with practicing at home, so many sounds draw your attention outward. Right now, my husband is in the kitchen making a sandwich. I'm, and I know he's doing that. I recognize the sounds of the sandwich, you know, and I know him, he like lots of sandwiches. So then there's a sound. <laughs> now, now, now he's making sounds himself. So then, but there's a sound that goes over. Ooh, the sound of the husband in the kitchen, making sandwiches, which draws a little bit of energy. Then you're practicing. There's the sound of the post person delivering something. And you think, I wonder what it is. Should I go check? Is it the package I ordered or is it just junk mail? Should I get up now? Or the sound of a dog barking or a neighbor doing this or that, or a car, or you know, a construction vehicle, or something like this. All these sounds which draw our attention outward. Practicing at home, as soon as you get into the seated postures, the eyes are a distraction themselves, because we are not as diligent with drishti as we want to be. And we fold forward, and what happens? Dust appears. Dust. Oh, look, there is dust. Shall I get up and clean it now? And you play, no, no, I'll do my practice. No, shall I clean it? I should clean it right now. And the closer your face is to the dust, the more tempting it is to just get up and just clean that one dust. Oh, let me just move little dust out of the way. And then what happens soon? You're sweeping the whole room and no more practice is finished. But the room is very clean. Oh, this dust has been a distraction. So each time we have to draw the attention back in. leave the dust. It is there. At least if you go to a yoga center, then you're not... You at least have some boundary because it's not yours. You think, oh, dust, I'll let them know after, you know, some boundaries are When it's your dust, you feel an ownership over this dust. I must go fix this dust right now. And what also happens, I don't know if this happens to you. Every time I say, I will fix this after practice, I let it go. Oh, no, no. That dust is now permanently attached to wherever it is gone. Because after practice, I don't care about the dust. I feel so happy. The dust can be there. Everything can be exactly where it is. It's totally fine. But then again, the next day I come and take practice again, the same posture. Hello, my friend, the dust. And you know what? It has multiplied over the night. Oh, no, More. finally, at some moment, you have to remember, okay, I have to get this dust out of the way you know, I make a commitment tomorrow before practice, I will take sweeping, 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 sweeping. We can make some daily sweeping practice as well. Okay. So many times we have to call our attention back, call our attention back. Remember when we work drishti, drishti has this element of abhyasa where we bring our attention back. It's to train the senses, to get focused on the inner world. It's not to stare at one of the drishtis. So some students with too much abhyasa have given this direction will usually ask me a question about the nasagri drishti, you know, gazing at the nose. I say, oh, you know, I like this yoga very much. But every time I gaze at my nose, I get such a headache. I have so much headache. Have you ever gotten a headache from looking at the nose? You're staring too hard at the nose in that case. So then we stare at the nose with such a ferocity that it creates, a you know, like this feeling of being cross-eyed and we get a little headache from it. That happens to you, are looking too intensively at the nose. So we don't know, so the drishti is funny with translation, right? Think about the difference in terms of the words and the feeling. Look at your nose or look towards the nose. This is a big difference. Look at the nose means like I need to inspect my nose and figure out if there's any unwanted items on it. You know, look towards the nose has a directionality and we're looking towards the nose. So particularly with the nose, Drishti, don't try to stare at the pores in the nose. Not like that, right? You do probably need a magnifying mirror for that anyway. You're not going to find it like this, but towards the nose. So it's almost as though you're welcome to do this with me right now. You can take your palm close enough to your face so it's unfocused and then gently draw the fingers inward until the fingers come close together and there's a point like a few maybe an inch outward from the tip of the nose and that that's actually where we're looking and then you can turn that into a single point one fingertip and then when you remove it the 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 sort of arrangement of the nose is still there and the eyes go into an unfocus, and it's then you can let it go right now. And then that the unfocused nature of the eyes is what we're interested in. This unfocus on the external world, this blurriness of the external world to again change our focus into the inner space. All right. So, this is again how we work drishti. And that's true whether we're willing in our fingers or our toes. And I'm guilty numerous times of taking Pashima Tanasana and then inspecting the state of my toenails, you know? look forward, oh, my toenails are too long, you know? And I will tell you, it is important that the yoga practitioner on one very trivial level does not have too long toenails because this can damage your body and it can damage your yoga mat as well. I've seen some yoga practitioners try to jump through without having trimmed their toenails and they jump through with so much force that they have made, made a small cut in the arm and produce bleeding off of the arm. So it's important And a very small trivial note to make sure your toenails are properly trimmed. So this is also something to think about. Now, don't stop your practice. Trim the toenail unless it's extraordinarily long (laughs) and then try to do it before. But I have seen some students actually harm themselves with too long toenail. And definitely too long toenails can harm the yoga mats. And then you need to, you know, change the mat sooner than, than necessary. So we think over and over again about directing the mind away from the external world into the inner world. And this happens over and over again. Do not think that there is something wrong with you because this happens for you. Do not think there is something uniquely disturbed about your mind. This is just the state of what is. This is why we are constantly practicing. This is why practice is about abhyasa. So where is the element of vairagya? Each time the mind wanders, each time you find yourself sweeping the room, cutting your toenails, answering a text message. I did see one student today who was uh, uh, swiping through their phone during the practice. Hopefully it was something important. Hopefully it was not just Instagram. I don't anything against Instagram. I love Instagram, as many of you know. But try not to do Instagram during the yoga practice, at the very least. Okay? Try not to take Instagram during the yoga practice, at the very least. Now, When we think about all of these various distractions, each time the mind wanders, forgive yourself and redirect. Forgive yourself and redirect. And this is so important to maintain that balance. Otherwise, even the redirection can get too intense. Okay, I see that there are some questions that have popped into the chat. So let me go ahead and take a look at these. Mm -hmm. All right, let's see what else is in the chat. Tatum is here. Hi, Tatum. And Tatum writes, Thanks for another great experience. You're welcome. Thanks for practicing. Tatum says, I had a strange experience today as suddenly I started feeling very sick at the back bends. It didn't go very deeply in those as a result, but I got further than normal in the marichasanas. Is it normal to start feeling sick? Then in Savasana, I felt like I was sinking through the floor and wrapped around. The yoga mat, she says, I haven't taken anything, I promise. Okay, it does sound like you went on a little trip there, huh? So unfortunately, it is very normal to have feelings of nausea come up in the practice. It's very normal. You can suddenly feel, oh, I feel like I'm gonna vomit. Oh, I feel the world is spinning. Oh, poor me. Ugh, and this is totally normal. Now, normal this comes up with one of two many reasons for this. Sometimes when we get into the deep organ cleansing, then some organ got pushed, and then some feeling is in the body. Ugh, it feels icky. It released something, so maybe some toxin, some this, some that, released in the body, and we get this overwhelming feeling of oh, I feel so sick to my stomach. Oh, it feels so awful. And that's totally normal. Now, the other thing that can happen is that we say in kind of and like sort of spiritual practice that one of the last defenses of the ego is the feeling of sickness. So that right when you're breaking through to some deeper level of consciousness, the ego just throws up, you know, oh, you feel sick. Oh, I feel not well right now. So you're about to confront some obstacle. And if you were to stay present and aware, then you would have to confront that. But then the ego just throws up. Oh, you feel sick. Oh, you're not feeling good right now. Oh, just run away. And so then there's this, this, it's happened for me before. I've been in situations where I've been doing kind of like deep personal growth work. And right when it got really challenging, I had this feeling of, oh, I have to leave right now. I don't feel well, I'm going to vomit. I just feel like, oh, it's over. And the teacher at the time said, see if if you need to go vomit, please go and take care of yourself. However, I'd like for you to just stay and sit for a few minutes and be present with the feeling. So that's the advice that I would give you is when you feel suddenly sick, particularly around back bends, twists, just pause for a moment, close your eyes, and see if you can be with the feeling. And usually it will pass. Of course, if it's physical, it may need a little time to pass. If it's the first reason the organ got squeezed from the deep work of the yoga practice, that's one thing. But if it is this kind of ego defense thing, which is very, very often the case then when that comes up, just take a moment. You don't need to do another posture. It's already done its work. It's brought up some obstacle. Close your eyes, feel what you feel, check in with breath, body, and mind, and just be there for a few breaths. Give yourself a little pause and then see if it passes. And maybe there's some wisdom there in that, some training there in that. And then it sounds like at the end, you had a really wonderful Savasana experience. So all those obstacles maybe 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 gotten burned up a little bit. So good work. Uh, the feeling of sinking through the floor sounds wonderful. So good. So maybe you went through something, came out on the other side. Great. Enjoy it. And don't look for it to happen again. Right? So we get attached to good experiences. Oh, there was that day that I was sinking through the ground. It was so wonderful. Then you come back the next day. Oh, I want to sink into the ground. And the ground does not let you sink. And then then it becomes to be another obstacle. So just experience it. It was an experience. Let it go. Mm-hmm. Okay. Abby has a question. It's a long question. So Abby, thanks for writing that. Let's see. I'll read it for everyone. So Abby says, thank you. You're welcome. And Abby's question, how can I tell whether I'm experiencing? Good question. Good follow-up question. Interesting. How can I, how can I tell whether I'm experiencing a physical or a mental block with certain postures? I had to take two months off of practice towards the end of last year because of a non-yoga related wrist injury and lost a lot of strength in the hands and wrists. Since then, I dread and the vinyasa flows towards the end of practice because by the end, my wrists are feeling achy and tired. I can't tell if this is genuinely physical, that my body is just slowly building strength again, or whether it's my brain panicking and telling me that I won't be able to do it before I get there, I even get there. So it's probably in this case, in this case, you have an actual physical injury. So we have to honor that. So first of all, the fact that you, 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 you acknowledge that you need to take two months off of yoga for a non-yoga related wrist injury. First of all, that's horrible. I'm sorry. Like life is injurious. You know, we we're, we're so careful in our yoga practice. We're here. We take care, we take care. And then what happens? Some annoying life situation happens and now we can't practice and we're rehabilitating our wrist and oh no. So you have to acknowledge this injury is real. This has happened. This is not fictitious. I didn't invent this in my mind. I'm not fearing this for no reason. I'm not terrified of a tiger in the closet. You know, hopefully you don't have any tigers in your closet. So this was meant to say, I'm terrified of something that doesn't exist. You know, if you have a tiger in your closet, maybe you should take fear. <laughs> you don't take care of the tiger. So when you think about this, you have to recognize, I have been injured. This is real. This happened. This is a fact. Now I'm on the path towards healing. However, you have to acknowledge the truth. Of the past to proceed otherwise would be non-truthful. So this is a physical block that exists and the path of healing is sometimes much longer than we like. So if we think about this, when you're recovering from an injury you have to be very sensitive and understand which phase of the recovery you're in. So when you're in the pure recovery phase you're working therapy so your practice can change. During that therapy period you may take two months off. When you come back, you're modifying. You're not pushing, you're modifying to give the, to give movement and blood circulation and energy and attention to that area, but you're not pushing. It's very important when you have an injury, you do not push that injury in the acute phase and in the recovery phase of that injury. I've seen many students not give themselves the time of recovery. Your yoga practice changes more to physical therapy than it is to the rigorous flow of the practice during a period of injury. So I have had a very bad wrist injury. I had um uh what's called de Quervane syndrome, and it lasted for about two years. And it took a while to even get it diagnosed. And it came not from my yoga practice, but it came from teaching. And, you know, this is like life circumstance. And um You know, I had to figure out what was the cause, make certain adjustments and to change my practice and to change how I was teaching and to change so many things. And in this period, there's a period where, okay, you have to accept the injury. At some moment, there is going to be a memory of, I was once hurt. However, maybe you're not there yet. So we're going through this therapy period, therapy period, therapy period. You want to work with good medical professionals to give you the green light. Now your wrist is good again. When someone has said that to you, now your wrist is good again. Then you can move into another period, which is called testing. So now we're testing. So now we're going to test that wrist. We're going to test that old injury to see how it's doing. Now you've gone through the healing phase. Now you're in the testing phase. Testing phase does not mean reclaiming all that was lost. Testing means I want to see how it goes. So you're sensitive. Okay, I didn't do any chaturangas for the last three months. Now, I'm not going to try to do every chaturanga in the practice. Maybe I'm just going to do chaturanga in sun salutation A. Then how do you test? Not immediately. Yes, immediately. But 24 hours later, how do I feel? Do I feel good? All right. Then I usually recommend everybody in the testing phase, recovery, in the recovery phase of the testing phase of an injury, proceed with caution. Some people are like, Namaskar A was good. Let me do B. No, I really re- like stay for a few days, make a plateau, then test again, like climbing, you reach the plateau, hang out there, smell the flowers, check it out, take a picture, you know, then climb again, reach a plateau, stay there for a little while, let it stabilize again, climb again. So you're rebuilding. It takes time. So I really think that in, that in the particular case, Abby, that you're talking about is you have an actual injury that may still be in the recovery period. So I wouldn't recommend the pushing. Maybe you're in the testing period, so you test a little, reach a plateau. Test a little, reach a plateau. Give a plateau like a week, you know, and recognize that it's real. And think about some alternatives that you can do for Urdhva and Uplutihi. For example, in the Uplutihi, you could potentially make it easier by, particularly on the wrists, um, as long depending on what type of wrist injury it is. If you get two parallel bars and and then you can keep your, your wrists straight, so you could do Uplutihi like that. Urdhva Dhanurasana, you can do on the elbows, do the elbow back bend. Then you can really use your upper back. And then also you can address the postures of, am I putting too much stress on the wrists? You know, is there something that I'm not doing in Uplutihi? For example, am I hinging too much at the wrists and not lifting with my body? Am I hinging too much in my lower back, which can actually distribute pressure onto the wrists in Urdhva Dhanurasana? So we can think like this. In this case, you have a real actual physical injury that you're recovering from. This is not mental. The fear is real. So recognize that, respond to it and treat the body with respect and intelligence. And it will heal. You'll get on the other side of it, but you don't want to, you don't want to like, don't think you're being like, oh, I'm not being, uh, I don't have enough abhyasa. I'm not tough enough. I should just, I should just power through. This is not the phase you're in. That when you want to power through is when you're in bed and the alarm goes off and you're thinking about sleeping in. At that moment, you want to power through. But when you're dealing with recovery from an injury, then you want to give yourself the space and time. To move through recovery. Make sense? I've been there many times and there's a path through the injury, but it's often longer and less linear than we like. Okay. Let's see what else is in the chat. So now there's a question from Gabby. Hi, Gabby. Gabby says, thanks. And Gabby says, considering the pandemics and the impossibility of adjustments, can the criteria of completing an asana change? For example, supta Kurmasana. It's super difficult to buy in without any adjustment. I'm in Brazil and I have no hope to practice in person with my teachers in the next year. I understand, Gabby. Oh, goodness. We all miss the adjustments. We all miss being in the in-person class. Gabby, I would like to invite you to the crazy land of Florida where we are having in-person classes and giving adjustments. So if you want to go crazy, you can come over to Florida. I'm just kidding about that, but it is actually uh, true uh, for better or worse over here in this um, crazy state that I live in. And uh, uh, so there's that second sooner or later, we're all going to come back to practice and get adjustments probably later than we like, but sooner or later, it's going to happen. In the meanwhile, there are many things you can do without the bind. So for example, you can use a strap. So I really recommend just use a strap. The bind is not necessarily the the criteria for being able to move out of the posture. Traditionally, absolutely, dogmatically, yes, but there are other things. For example, being settled in the posture. So really focus on calming your nervous system while you're in the posture. Getting really comfortable with how you can work so you can really think about, oh, what's the anatomy of the posture? What's my body doing in the posture? And I'll be honest with you. I really recommend to use a strap in the meanwhile. It's we can really, really help you find the strength and the integrity. Whether your teacher will allow you to move on from Supta Khramasana, I will get in trouble if I tell you, oh, go ahead. Because you have to work that out with your teacher. Because you said in your you said in your question that you have teachers. So I recommend also to pose that same question to your teacher and say, please, I, I feel very stuck here and you can come and help me. If I use a strap, I feel very confident and my shoulders feel good. Can I please do the next posture if it feels good for you? So it's something to have a dialogue with your teacher about. And I really recommend having a dialogue with your teacher because if we don't if we don't have that dialogue with our teacher, we lift them up onto some pedestal and we treat them as though, oh we cannot, um, you know, we can't ask them anything. So have that same conversation with your teachers. And I think they'll probably be I- I happy to find some compromise during these special and unique times, especially if prior to the pandemic, when they were, when you were practicing with them, you could, you could bind your hands with help. In the meanwhile, a nice strap can be really, really beneficial. But supta krabasana, whether you're using a strap or not, please remember, everybody take care of the sternoclavicular joint, which is the place where you're, Clavicle meets your sternum, your collarbone meets the breastbone. All right. So this little joint right here. Whether you're using a strap, you're not using a strap, whether you're trying to bind your hands, you're doing curmasana or subturmasana. You feel a pain right here, or pressure, or discomfort, please exit the posture. This is you don't push through this. This is a this is like a traffic light in your in your body. It's not there for nothing, just like traffic lights are not placed in intersections, just for atmosphere. They create. Actual traffic patterns. So what do you do when you're driving through an intersection and you see a red light? What do you do if you're not in Florida? What do you do if you're not in the state of Florida? You stop. I'm making fun of Florida drivers. I can do that because I live here and I interact with them. Many Florida drivers, not to scare you if you come here, uh, don't always follow the traffic rules. So when you see the red light, you stop. So treat this discomfort, pain, definitely sharp pain, but even pressure at the sternoclavicular joint. Treat this like a red light and stop. And you'll have to think about then how to address why did I come to this red light and reevaluate it from a you know a neuromuscular standpoint. But uh, but please pay attention to that warning symbol. Okay, good. Let's see. I'm looking through the chat and want to make sure I get all the questions here. Tercia has a question. Hi, Tercia. I hope I pronounced your name correctly. Tercia says while trying to maintain the abundance, especially pulling in the sphincter muscles. I feel a little engagement in my glutes, my tailbone tucking. Is that normal? How do I maintain that and relax the glutes during the practice? Will it come with practice? Okay, so first of all, the bandhas are in the neighborhood of the glutes, but they are not the same. So when we're thinking about contracting the anus and we're contracting the muscles of the pelvic floor and the muscles that control the genitals, they're close to, but not the same as the muscles that control the glutes. So what I always recommend if we have a hard time differentiating between the muscles of the bandhas versus the muscles of the glutes and the position of the pelvis is to slow the activation of the bandhas down. So start with less squeeze, squeeze at just 5%, lightly squeeze, then make sure that you differentiate, oh, I'm only lightly squeezing from lightly squeezing. Then notice, oh, did I move my tailbone? Did I tuck my pelvis? Relax the pelvis. Did I squeeze my glutes? Relax the glutes. Then go from 5% to 10%, a slow acceleration, constantly checking to make sure that you didn't rotate the tailbone under into a posterior tilt, checking sure that you didn't squeeze your glutes too much to lock the pelvis down. And if all that got locked down, you let the bundes go and start again. Just like if you were driving your car and you accelerate and you got the check engine light, you would slow down. I mean, hopefully, right? Then you would slow down and be like, oh, I better not accelerate. Now, when I go over this, uh, when I go 90 miles per hour, all the warning bells in my car go off, I better slow down now. So you want to treat that in the same way. So we need to be more precise, more precise in your activation. And it does come with practice, but you have to practice properly. So what practicing properly means, don't just squeeze everything, squeeze specifically and activate specifically. And if things that are not meant to happen, get engaged, let those go, start again. Okay. Hi, Kathleen. Kathleen has a question. Kathleen says, thank you. Thank you, Kathleen. Kathleen says, I have a question about the transition from Pindasana to Mayurasana. I think you mean Pindasana to Matsyasana. I definitely don't recommend that you go from Pindasana to Mayurasana. Mayurasana is this arm balance from the second series, the elbow balance. So don't do Pindasana to Mayurasana, first of all. But I'm no, I'm just making fun of you. It's okay. But the, so just to be clear. So let me go back to the question. Uh, to transition from Pindasana to Matsyasana. So we have this, uh, you know, the folded forward, the squeezing in pose, the embryo pose to the fish pose. So she says, my spine needs rebound time before I can take Matsyasana. Any suggestions other than to let it be? Yes. Put your hands on the ground and you want to lower down so slowly. So you're actively uncurling the spine as you go down. And this will help you. Then you can also just take the time and rest when you're down. That's not a problem. So you can give yourself that time. Lastly, you can go into a light matsyasana. So you can do a very gentle matsyasana. Take a few breaths there and then deepen the posture. Mm -hmm. Okay, make sure it's fish pose though. Don't try to do peacock pose after that one, all right? Okay, Noelle has a question. Noelle says, due to allergies, it is often very difficult to breathe through my nose and headstand. I have to breathe through my mouth. Is it bad? Also, I usually exhale as I straighten my arms and lift into backbends. Should I inhale? Well, Noelle, I'm gonna report you to the yoga police. You're, you know, I'm gonna send you, when I, I'm going to give you a yoga ticket, speeding ticket for inhaling and exhaling at the wrong place. I'm just kidding. So you do, however, in backbends, it's going to help you out to inhale as you lift up. And the reason why is because when you inhale, you're going to lift your rib cage away from the pelvis and you'll be able to support the spinal extension. So that's that second. If you have allergies and your nose is all clogged up, okay. You've got to keep breathing, breathe through the mouth, but try to breathe through the nose but doesn't happen okay breathe through the mouth but don't breathe through the mouth with the tongue out breathe through the mouth so you make the mouth as small of a hole as possible so that you're replicating the same feeling of breathing through the nostrils this will this will remove some of the negative impact that comes from mouth breathing why don't we want to breathe through the mouth because when we open the mouth too widely the nervous system has it gets a feedback loop of panic. So when we breathe through the mouth, it sends a stress signal to the body. Especially when the tongue is a little bit out and it feels like we're panting. If you ever have noticed yourself stressed out, you'll you'll be able to recognize that panting breath. So just change the mouth breathing to a controlled mouth breathing and try to still do a little bit of squeezing at the back of the throat so that you're still controlling the breath very fluidly, especially on the inhale. The exhale will be a little easier to control, but you'll be able to get that firmly established. Second, make sure the tongue is inside because if the tongue is too much of out, even even when when you breathe like this, if the tongue is too close to the teeth, you might be cooling the body by cooling the surface of the tongue. So this is actually a pranayama that you can do if the body is too hot. You can cool the body down by either doing, um, which I can't do, this thing where you fold the tongue or just by placing the tongue out and letting the air pass over the tongue. So make sure you're not doing that in the headstand. Close the lips and control the breath to as small a little hole as possible so that you can replicate the feeling of breathing in and out through the nose. Okay? You got to make it work with the allergies. You know, my husband, he has a uh, he broke his nose like three times in his life and, uh, they, he, 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 before, he, had, he actually had an operation to uh, open up one of the nasal passages. Cause he could, they recognize he had like 10% nasal, like breath capacity out of one nostril. So they opened up, opened it up and they didn't, it's not hundred percent now, now instead of 90, 10, he's got like, this one's still really like really good. And the other one's just like less blocks, you know? So he often sometimes needs to breathe uh, through the mouth for the same reason. You know, if you have a, a nose is blocked. Keep breathing, but control the breath. Don't pant. Important for the nervous system. Okay, good. So there are some suggestions for self-assists that are happening. Uh, Gabby, who asked about the assist, says that she's going to come to Miami soon. Uh, Noelle says that uh, Noelle taught her husband how to give the assist. So if you do have other beings that live with you, you can recruit them, but they're not always helpful. Sometimes I ask my husband to help me. Even he is trained as a yoga teacher but sometimes Tim is involved with other things. Tim, can you help me? Oh, I'm coming. You know, 30 minutes later, he's like, do you still need help? I'm like, no, it's like half an hour later. So I've learned, I've learned that if I want help from my husband, I ask him for help long before I need it. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, I am playing like, oh, 20 minutes before. Oh, will you help me? Yes, I'm coming. Then, and then sometimes he surprises me, oh, you're here now. Then I just do it there because I don't know. I have, I have two poses from the fifth series that my teacher Sharat told me, you have to make Tim help you because, because to be honest with you, I'm so bad at them that I can't even practice them on my own, <laughs> which is hilarious. So, uh, I have to, I've got to, I've got to recruit some help. Okay. I see two more questions in the chat. And then Carly has been waiting patiently with her virtual hand raised. So we're going to get through the chat and then, then Carly, we're going to ask you to unmute one second. Jackie says in the chat, "When I go into shoulder stand, I find it hard to breathe. How can I overcome this?" Ah, the shoulder stand, difficult to breathe. There are numerous people that have difficult time to breathe in the shoulder stand. Here's what goes on when you have difficulty to breathe in shoulder stand. Usually, your body is not inverted enough, and there are numerous reasons why our body is not inverted enough. Some of them, pain in the neck. We can't invert enough. You have to bend the neck really deeply in shoulder stand. What can you do? Take the blankets, stack the blankets. You give your neck more space. Second reason that the body is not inverted enough. The hip is a little closed like this, so instead of being a straight line lifting up, we're a V shape going down. So then suddenly we have all of the weight of the body compressing on the neck. So to do a deep breath in shoulder stand, we need space for the lungs, which you have to create by inverting the body and lifting up as much as possible. This is challenging. Second reason why sometimes it can be difficult to breathe in shoulder stand is. If you've got, particularly if you're female and you have, um, you know, body parts that come into contact with your throat, this can make it difficult to breathe. And in this situation, I've had numerous students report that wearing double sports bras can be very helpful. Okay. So I'm not sure in which, uh, which, which, you know, which, which version it is, but it could be a combination of both. So sometimes we need, if it's too loose up here, we need a strong sports bra to prevent the, you know, too much compression up in this area. All right. So think about those two and see what helps. Okay. One more question in the chat. Um, has another question. She says, I feel my lumbar spine, not very mobile when doing cat and cow, for example, while trying to move the vertebrae, I feel like the, the the spine is moving as one piece. I feel it restricts my backbones. How do I improve spinal flexibility? So Tertia says, that she basically says, I feel like my back is, my teacher Sherat sometimes would tell people, oh, your back is like a table, no bending. So sometimes he would say this to people, oh, you have back like a table. So maybe you also have back like a table. What can you do? You have, if you want to bend the table, you can't do it quickly or you're going to break it. So you want to go very slowly, 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 and you work with your breath and you work with warming up the body slowly, delicately, and find the joints of the spine. Start off with sensation. First, just feel there's a joint, there's a joint. So now instead of one piece, you have many, many pieces still stuck together, but you feel this piece, this piece, this piece, this piece, this piece. piece. Start to feel the joints of the spine. Then from feeling, then start to work your muscles. Feel the muscles. Oh, muscle, this muscle, that muscle. Then focus on some body parts that do move. I would imagine for you that you can get your rib cage to lift away from the hips. So that's something almost everybody can do from seated. So do that from seated. Bring that memory. When you're in backbend, lift your ribs away from the hips. Lastly, if you really feel you want to improve in backbending, I would probably also recommend that you think about uh, using a yoga wheel. So you could lie over the yoga wheel. Uh, and then this can be a, bring a sense of relaxation. Or even if a yoga wheel may be too intense, you can also do a big physio ball. All right, try that out. Those have helped me a lot. I like the yoga wheel a lot. One last question from Petra. This is an, a useful question. So Petra says, this is from Austria. Hi Petra from Austria. Why do the opening and closing prayer sound so different from teachers? We're all doing the best we can to replicate the sounds of the opening prayer that we have heard from our teachers. Unfortunately, we are all mispronouncing and saying strange things because we are not our teachers. So we try our best and we say things a little strangely. That being said, the opening prayer and the closing prayer are not technically mantras and they are technically not Vedic chants. Vedic chants are meant to be toned in a particular way mantras as well are meant to be toned in a particular way meaning there is a particular song a particular harmony the opening and closing prayers are as you like so unfortunately there was never a very strict discipline taught in our tradition about how to do the opening prayer it was sort of taught and then okay you do and so then we do And then we're all a little bit different. So it's all, you know, I look different when I forward fold. Tim looks different when he forward folds, but we're all trying to do our best. But at the same time, because this hasn't been taught in terms of the transmission as a strict tonal uh, connection, the way a Vedic chant or a mantra would be from teacher to student, then this is giving a little bit of more freedom for people to uh, express themselves, you could say. So I don't think anyway is wrong. However, I'd really recommend this, whatever crazy song, whatever teacher is doing, please just try to do that just for that day. You don't like it. You don't have to do it again, but just try to do that, you know? Uh, if you're if you go to Russia and then they do the opening prayer with the Russian accent, just try to do a little Russian. It's OK. Then you go to, you know, another country and then they have the, the accent of that country. Just OK. Do that. You know, then if you go to Texas and the United States and it's the opening prayer with a little bit of a Texas accent, then you just be in Texas for a moment. It's OK. Come down to Florida and where it is and you know already we're crazy here. So just be crazy while you're in Florida and then you can go back to your sanity when you come back. OK, so just remember, it's not it's not a Vedic chant and it's not technically a mantra. This is just a, called an opening and closing prayer. So we are allowed to uh, kind of express our uniqueness, you could say. And and then we forgive the, the, the non-Indian Sanskrit speakers for our, our uh, mispronunciations along the way. All right. OK, I see there are some other questions in the chat, but Carly's been so patient. So I feel like, Carly, it's your time now. Carly, would you please unmute yourself? And I got the headphones oh. in like.
1: All right, guys, we need more time. Thank you. <laughs> um, thank you, uh, Kino. Um, my question is loaded, but <laughs> I didn't even know how to ask it. But um, I know you can handle it because okay. um, you're, <laughs> especially um, being, like you said, you set yourself the crazy state of the sport <laughs> But I've been practicing yoga. I started in 2007. I'm in Canada. I've never been to India or any traditional origins of yoga, Um, but when I first discovered it and started practicing with you and learning through your YouTube videos, I was like, wow, the Western world has so much to do to learn from the Eastern culture. And, um, I was really interested in Sanskrit, like learning how, like even just one word I could spend so much time studying because it had so many different meanings in English. And now I've been practicing, um, Ashtanga, getting into it the last three years. And I really enjoy the practice and the tradition of it. Um, but I'm finding that And maybe this has to do with the rise of socialism, which I think is important, but I find that there's a lot of, um, I don't know, it's activism or people just um, calling out certain ways of um, appropriation of yoga and, you know, saying that namaste is like such a trendy word and all of these Sanskrit terms are being um, used as more like a trendy pop culture here and I'm like no you can't take yoga away from me you know like it hurts me to to read that and to think that that's what people um are seeing so I'm just and I'm sure that maybe that has to do with my own chitta I need to like organize it a little bit um and not attach myself to the appropriation so much and um know that there's different truths out there I guess but I'm just curious to know if, how, how you've managed because I know that you see it too we all See mm-hmm. everything's virtual in our base. So I'm just curious how you, um, have managed that yourself in crazy Miami.
0: <laughs> mm, yeah, no, Carly, good question. And, and thanks for asking. And I agree. I'm, I'm happy you, you know, waited and, uh, to ask the question because, um, that's probably too much to type into the chat and there's many different nuances of that. All right. So first of all, let's flesh out what it means to appropriate and what it means to appreciate. Right. So when we think about appropriation, what's the problem with appropriation? So if I come into a space that's not mine and I see something I like, and then I appropriate that, it means I take it, I took it. And now if I, you know, enjoy it while I'm there and then I return it to its owner, great. I've appreciated it. But if I take it with me then I've appropriated that, I've I've made it my own. I've claimed it as mine. I've put ownership around it and said, this is mine. Now I own this and it wasn't mine to start off with. So I appropriated it. I went in, let's say it's a pillow. You walk into your, take a nice neutral, non-political thing, pillows, right? You walk into someone's house, there's a pillow. You take the pillow. Now that pillow happened to be something that was passed on in that family for generations upon generations. A unique technique that that family did. You came in, you took the pillow. And then they said, "You maybe you even said to them, I like this pillow. And they said, go ahead and take it. We have so many of them. This is our family technique. Go take the pillow. Then you took that pillow. Then you said, oh, this is my pillow. I own this pillow. Now you happen to think, yeah, this pillow is so wonderful. I want to design a whole bedspread based on this pillow. Then you designed a bedspread. Now you're selling your bedspread all over without any recognition of where you got the pillow. Now the pillow family, they have no idea. They're just quietly making their pillows happy in their existence until one day they realize, oh, this friend of ours came and took our design and appropriated it for themselves and are profiting off of it with no direction towards me or my family who made this and cared for this and protected this over many, many, many years. Hmm. This is not fair. Okay. Hey friend, I gave you this. What's up with that? You know? And then if says, Oh, but you gave it to me freely. I changed it and I made it this. It's my own. What's your problem? Who cares? you know then this is appropriation and this is harmful and it's harmful to the family that cared for that pillow i'm using the analogy you know to, to for many many years now we take that to the entire country of india we have yoga today because thousands of generations of families of yogis of dedicated practitioners practiced in unsung places of in caves rejected from society, shunned by the colonial occupying powers and made to feel, um, you know, as though their cultural history was something to be ashamed of, pushed off into the side. And then suddenly to wake up one day and then, and realize, Oh, this person, they, uh, they suddenly, this is my culture. Wait a minute. I, I also want to be proud of my culture. My culture is the reason you have this. My history, my generations of, of, of thousands, 2,000 years ago, my ancestors were practicing this, not yours. Not to say that you cannot benefit, but hey, what about me? You know? So it's not to say that there, that other people who are not Indian cannot practice yoga. There are, it's not that it's not saying, oh, you're not Indian. You cannot practice yoga. Oh, you're not Indian. Oh, you cannot, uh, don't teach yoga. It's not that. Right. Then that, then that we, then we end up into this, you know, if this or that, then we're back to this all or nothing thinking, then it's all, then it's only, oh, okay. Then if you have this genealogy and you can practice yoga, we have to think about a couple of things, especially any non-Indian yoga practitioners need to be very aware of the history of yoga and they bear the burden of responsibility to educate people. Oh, this comes from India. This comes from India. I didn't create this. I didn't invent this. I don't own this. I cannot put my copyright on this. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. You know, I don't own this. extremely important. Extremely important. Okay. Now, when we think about this, I don't own this. I didn't copyright this. I didn't make this. My teacher, my teacher, Patabi Joyce, people asked him, you know, many, many Western students. One student came to him, a friend of mine actually said, uh, came in and said, oh, Patabi Joyce, you have given so much to the world of yoga. What have you given to the Tradition of yoga, what is, what is, what is, what is your stake in, the, in the, the tradition of yoga? He looked at them with a huge frown and said, Me, 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 give to yoga? He said, yes, you give. What is your unique contribution that you have given to this tradition of yoga? Me? He looked at them crazy. You crazy man. Nothing. That was his response. Nothing. I've given nothing. What can I give to yoga? Yoga is everything. I am nothing. I am just a teacher. You want to practice, practice. You don't want to practice, don't practice. I've given nothing. I don't own this yoga. My teacher until his very end kept saying to him, I have done nothing for this practice. I don't own this practice. Oh, you this, you that. It's under your, not my name. Ask him, what are you teaching? Oh, you've given this, you've given that. No, no, no. I'm teaching what my teacher taught me, not me. This. Not meanness is something so far from the culture of appropriation that it is so difficult for for people who live within a culture where we are taught to capitalize on things, where we're taught that we can take this for our own use. That it's so hard to understand. It's not me. I can be a vessel for this, but it's not me. I can benefit from this. I can care for this. But it's not me. And so this is something very, very challenging, I think, for many, many, um, many people to get, you know, many students of yoga to really understand. So, what can we do when we're non-Indians? First, educate yourself. You want to use the word namaste? Read about it, read the Sanskrit etymology of it, read what it means, read when it's appropriate to use, understand where it comes from, understand the holy significance of it, understand what to say namaha means, understand what that means to say. I bow down to you, which is a practice in and of itself, a humble recognition that we are all of the same spark of divinity in the Sanskrit and Purusha. So it's essentially, you know, we have all these translations, but this idea of namaha, you know, the idea of bowing down, that in and of itself is the removal of I. How can we take something if there is no I? If I am bowing in this moment, if I'm giving thanks in this moment, so that's the first and foremost, to really educate oneself on the history of yoga, where it comes from, to pay homage to that in a very specific way. This is extremely important to never bow down to the forces, right? To bow down to the lineage of yoga. Yes. To bow, never to bow down to the forces, which would seek to remove the heritage of yoga from the teaching. Those, those situations where we say, Okay, well, you can be here if you don't speak Sanskrit. Okay, you can be here if you don't say Om. Oh, you can teach yoga, but we just call it stretching. Okay, don't participate in that. That's one thing you can do. Don't participate in that, you know? Now, how do you appreciate? Okay, think about this. How do I appreciate? First of all, keep a connection to some lineage. I know lineage starts to be controversial now. I mean, no lineage is perfect. or human beings here or there. But we can think about lineage and appreciation from the larger perspective. Okay, to think about, trace this lineage. I am here today because this teacher went over to this family and studied from there. Then that teacher, they learned from here. And just to think about that is so important. And then to place yourself within that lineage. What can I do? Okay, I cannot go to India. No problem. Okay, can I study with teachers that have been? How can I interact in this way? How can I learn? Maybe even read from books. Find you know find books that are that are written by people who are Indian Indian masters of yoga or people of Indian descent and learn and read about that. It's extremely important. Okay. Then the other thing that I think is uh, extremely important when we're navigating this navigating the space of spiritual practice of any type, you know. It's a difficult space because should we, should we ever really profit off of spirituality? You know, and this is something that everyone has to sit with. It's okay. I need to, you know, I need to pay the bills. Yes. We need to pay the bills. Okay. I have a yoga center. So some people say, Oh, all yoga should be free. I'm like, yes. If I had taken the path of the renunciate, I would agree with you. But at the same time, I'm a yoga studio owner, you know, Tim and I, we are here running our yoga studio and we have to charge for classes because we need to pay the bill. You know, what can I say to the electric company? Oh, electric company, it's the yoga. Please give us free electricity. I cannot say to the landlord, oh, please, landlord, please give us, you know, free rent because we teach yoga and we want to give yoga to everyone. Please support yoga. Who are you not to support yoga? My landlord kick us out, you know, and come on to where it's the United States, we'd get some lawsuit, you know, even paid and sort of thing. So there's a balance between running an ethical business and, uh, profiting to a, to an extent that's unethical. And I think every yoga teacher needs to sit with that and really think about, okay, I've taken this path of the, of the householder where I'm going to need to pay my bills and I'm going to need to, you know, create a livelihood at the same time. I have the recognition that this is not mine. So I'm making my livelihood off of something I didn't invent. I didn't create and I owe a debt. So then we can think about how can we repay this debt. And I think this is an important thing for every yoga practitioner to take on. First of all, to make available scholarships, to make available funding for whether it's people of Indian descent who might not be able to afford, or other marginalized communities that might not be able to afford access to those classes, to have a system in place to make sure that there is an equitable equitable distribution of the teaching that's available to truly make the practice accessible. Second, in some charitable form, to give back to India. It's not that hard to do. I started working with Yoga Gives Back, which is a charity that's that's founded on that very principle, in some way to give back, whether that means to organize a trip where you take a bunch of students to go and practice in India together. Okay, great. You meet a teacher. Wonderful. Or if you think about find a charity that's doing great work within India and you make a small contribution, it can be as little as a dollar a month. It can make a difference. But to think about that can be really, really wonderful. Okay. So we could talk more about this. I think like maybe the last thing is if we're in doubt, there are great resources. I can mention a few of them. Um, uh, There's uh, a, if you just even want to follow some of the social commentary, there's a woman called Susanna Barkataki, who's posting a lot on Instagram. There are some college professors. Uh, We've invited uh, one um, woman um, uh, to our course to give a lecture exactly on this, but to continue just educate yourself as much as possible. So I think that's a start and it's a work in progress. So I hope that that was useful. I hope it provides some guidance. And of course, I mean, the last thing, which is for everyone is keep practicing, keep practicing, keep practicing, you know, keep practicing. Don't don't feel you want to practice. I feel the best way that we can honor the lineage of yoga is to practice authentically and truly as much as possible. When you practice, then you're honoring that lineage. You stop practicing. What do you do? You got this amazing gift. You threw it out. That's not honoring it. Keep practicing, keep practicing, keep practicing with a conscious intention of how you can honor the roots of that practice. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime.